am I? I guess I'm what happens if you passionately share with Brother Ossie something you were feeling in the Lord. You might just find yourself up here. So, um, <laughs> so I didn't know that phone call was going that direction that day, and yet here we are. So thank you, Lord. Um, my name is Zach, and um, probably won't get into much detail on my story because it could take a lot of our time, and I really want to get through as much of this material as we can today. Um, I do want to say a few things about the material I'm going to be jumping into. Um, the first is um, this, the start of something that was probably about three years into uh, yeah, about three years into going to a Bible school, I remember being in a truck with a very close friend of mine. And in that, I started to share with him my view on violence. And uh, his dad was a police officer. He was a big guy, very physical guy. And um, he started looking at me. This is a close friend. He started looking at me with this incredible irritation. And I thought wow, you know, I, he's, he's really heated. And he started asking me very pointed questions. No, I'm talking, someone's coming into your house. They're, you know, and, and I'm telling him, look, this is, this is the convictions I have. And, um, and I couldn't believe it, but I'm telling you, a friendship was severed on that day through, through that topic. You know, I mean, we could debate all these different things, and yet if someone was just standing saying, these are the convictions I have about what it means to represent God's image as a people, it would cause such a visceral, you know, violent response. And um, it reminded me, it, it didn't remind me, um, someone reminded me, Brother Zafir, uh, yesterday about... Um, um, a man that was a Seventh-day Adventist by the name of Desmond Doss. Is that the correct name? And I don't know the entire story, but what I do know is that um, he was a conscientious objector, did not believe in violence, and yet found himself in the most violent war that the world had ever seen. And in fact, he found himself in one of the most violent places in the world that the war touched. He was in the Pacific Theater. And it was in that that a very bloody battle happened. And um, I guess a 400-foot cliff separated any support and where the troops had gone on the offense. And those troops on a, on a major retreat got left behind. I mean, hundreds wounded. And this man started going and grabbing each one of those troops that was behind and started laying, lowering them down by ropes over this 400-foot cliff. And each time he'd grab one, apparently he'd pray the prayer, Lord, let me get one more. Let me get one more. Now, that's a powerful story, but if you don't know the backdrop, most of the men that were likely on that field had beat him up, had cursed his name, had did everything they could do to try to get him to not be this expression. What is it? What is it inside a man that hates so much this expression of self-giving, self-sacrificing love that does not want to take up something against another? <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with this medic not wanting to bear an arm and yet the entire barracks, boy, they wanted to snuff it out 
you start getting a sense that maybe you're touching something divine in this. When all the powers of hell go against it to snuff it out, you start getting a sense we might be on to something that is at the heart of who God is. Amen. So, what are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about the God of wrath or the God of love. That's what we're going to be speaking about. I was just seeing if the title was up there. Don't put the drawing up yet. It'll be a distraction. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I want to start by reading a quote. And if you remember where we're at in our, in our meeting right now, where we're at is that there's people across the country that are feeling a call to community. They're feeling a call that the church is not who she's supposed to be. However, this time was to say, how do you take those ideals and actually see them become a reality? And I think you can see some of the things that we've been going over today. I mean, what happened this morning? I do not believe revival in the household of God is possible outside of the revelation that came this morning. If there is going to be a messianic kingdom, if there is going to be an anointed on the earth, it is going to come through this revelation. You know, and not speaking of mine, I'm speaking of the one that came earlier. Um, mine, I hope to add to that. There is a little bit more of a veil still over God in so many ways when we think about him that shapes God's people. It shapes our prayer life. It shapes the way we think to treat one another. And I will tell you, I'm going to be speaking about God's nature and love. And I will say, if this love does not radically invade, rearrange, and reconstitute life in you, community is not possible, period. Amen. I'm going to start by reading a quote. Well, I'm going to start by telling you, I'm going to stop every time I don't feel the Lord and say, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to do that because uh, I just feel as though that we need the Lord in, in, in this topic so much. We need God's revelation in this so much. And I know the people that have been praying, I feel part of something up here. I feel a part of a body. And I'm so thankful to God. I don't feel as though, you guys, the sanctification you desire in your life is possible outside of a body. You're going to have to find it. And in finding it, you're going to find the release from self you've been looking for. Amen. So when I say thank you, Lord, I'm saying thank you, God, and thank you for your anointed, and thank you for how they speak, and how they pray, and how they come alongside, and how we're together in something. Amen. Amen. And uh, one last funny thing, when we got to get going. <laughs> um, but I, I was seeing Brother Dan speaking up here, and, you know, he would ask a question, should we, should we take time on that? And he'd look up like this and look back down, and I thought, wow, he's so in tune with the Lord that he's asking the divine sovereign, do we have a little time for this? Well, if you guys get up on this side of the stage, you'll look up. There's a clock right there. <laughs> so... I didn't, I didn't know that, so he, he, was, he was just looking to see what time it was. So. 
I was back there going, thank you, Dan's in the spirit. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I'll, I'll likely look up, though, and do the same, but not because I'm looking at the clock, because I'm asking the Lord, do we have time for this? Do you want me to touch it? So, amen. <sighs> Viewing God rightly. I want to read you a quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he had at what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deepest heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. That's A.W. Tozer. And I don't know if you can hear what he's saying in this quote. He's saying that this is of no small consequence, the way you think of God. In fact, when you get alone and you think and, you're, and, and, and conceive in your heart, God, what do I see you as? How do I understand you? Those things are shaping your life. That's why when... Platonism hijacked our faith and it became abstract. We left the incarnation. We left the immersion of God into our everyday lives and we gave it up to philosophy and distant thought. You see, when God is thought of a certain way, it shapes everything. So I want to start with a passage of Scripture that ended up having me up here. And that was a passage of Scripture from Matthew 5, verse 38 through 45. That passage reads, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who would borrow from you. Now, I don't know um, if you all would have been confused when Jesus made that statement, but I feel a few of us might have been, because he said, you have heard it said and I would feel as though everyone that heard that phrase would say to themselves, yes, because God said that. We have heard that said because that's what was communicated to us from the law of Moses. So what is it that you are speaking now, but I say unto you? And you're taking us down a whole different route. What is, the, what is this change that is happening 
What is this revelation that is coming? You know, I think that there could be people in the room that rightly said, well, we've heard it said because that's how we understand justice to be. It seems as though that in this passage, Jesus is starting to tell us that we're going to move past a revelation of justice and we're going to get into the heart of what justice has to protect, what justice is um, defending the honor of. And he starts to tell us about this way of, uh, of being. He says that you will not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So maybe there's a helpful lens that we could think through here that, that could help us get through what's going on. Um, that help us uh, understand this progression that we feel is coming to us in Revelation. Well, in Hebrews 1, it states this, God having spoken to the fathers long ago, in the, and I'm going to read out the Amplified Version, God having spoken to the fathers long ago in the voices and writings of the prophets in many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth. And in many ways, in these last days, he has spoke to us in his son. So that was probably a little bit more clunky. I don't know how they do the parentheses in the Amplified Version, but probably more dynamic than I just did it. Let me tell you the way that it's saying it. It's saying that God has spoken in a lot of different ways. Different fragments have come in. Different beams of light have come through. But in these last days... It's not through fragmentation that God has spoken, but he has removed a veil and he has revealed himself in his entirety, in his essence unto man. Amen? I found a, uh, uh, I was actually forwarded a powerful quote from C.S. Lewis that I'd like to read. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. Do you have the scene? A man's in a dark tool shed, and all of a sudden, ding, a ray of light comes through that tool shed. Right? Now, everything around him, is it all full of light yet? No, it's still all dark, but there has been a ray of light. There's been a fragment of truth that has come in. Listen as he goes, I was seeing that beam, I was seeing that beam, not seeing the things by it. Seeing the beam, but not looking down the beam. Listen to what he says. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. What? The dark tool shed. Gone. Listen to what he sees now. Then I moved, and I saw the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole picture Vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, I saw no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along that beam and looking at that beam are two radically different experiences. 
I believe that so much of what we look at when we are in the Old Testament scriptures is incredible beams of light that are coming out of an otherwise veiled essence. God sits behind, if you would, like a sun that is covered over the clouds, and yet we start to see these beams of light come through. And we can see what some of those beams would be. I mean, he showed Moses a pattern. We have a sense that God is showing there's an order of things that he has designed. You know, we see another beam of light come through, and it shows that he has a sense of equity and justice. And he starts talking about um, the fatherless, the sojourner, and all of these different things. You have a sense, okay, what is this about? You know, you have another thing of a sacrifice that's coming through, some type of atonement that's needed, some type of exchange of life. What's going on with this? You know, but all of these things are coming through fragments. All of these things, but it, you start to get a sense of God, what will weave? all of these fragments together into a single tapestry and tell us who you truly are. Reveal to us what is really going on in these things. If you don't feel the excitement of John 1 and then all of his creative purposes and designs that was held in his bosom now became visible and manifest on the earth. God, thank you. We get to know you now. A light has come. It's no longer in fragments and pieces. The essence of who you are is coming forth in the flesh. Our habit in the natural man when dealing with competing ideas is to take a wrecking ball and to smash through a whole set of ideas that we think can't fit with these other ideas that we have. In the, in the New Testament, and or I shouldn't say, in the, in, in the Scriptures, what we'll often do is we'll take passages of Scripture. Let me give you one just real quick. Um, in James, we know chapter 1, it says that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Amen? He is a father of light in whom there is no shadow or variance. And yet, in the book of Samuel, we have this odd phrase that God incited David to take a census. And so what do we do with these types of things that we look at and we say, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, the, the one says this and, and the other says this. You know, and what we oftentimes do is, given our proclivities, or what we're teaching on at that moment, we proof text or use these texts to prove one thing. And we smash over everything else on the other side. Or maybe we like to stick it to someone and really get them and go, yeah, God incited David to do that. God told him to lie. Don't you believe he's sovereign over everything? And we love to stick that so we can get someone kind of thinking about something a different way. And in that, we smash over James 1. And this whole system that we use of building the systems and doctrines of men have nothing to do with a revelation that comes from God. That comes to men who humble themselves and say, God, we want to look upon you rightly. We want to see you as you are. It shapes all of our existence to know you, God. And you got to reveal to us the true nature of who you are. you got to make plain to us these things. And you know what? It doesn't for a minute go past God. It waits for a revelation. It waits for God to descend the weightier matters from above where wisdom comes from. 
and says in this portion and in this portion they come together and this is the right understanding of it. God can do the same thing with wrath and with love if we'll allow him to. He doesn't have to be this capricious deity of this powerful storm of wrath or love, one winning one day, the other winning the other day. There's other explanations of God is love. There's other explanations of what this means, that there's still consequence. There's still justice. There's still wrath poured out from the heavens. There's ways that these things can come together rightly. They can fit together rightly. In full confession, you might be struggling how do they fit together rightly? I've been trying to think through those things for some time. Well, welcome to the club, you know? You're in good company, you know? I'm not sharing with you some comprehensive thing that I have discovered by any means. In fact, I'll tell you right now, one of the first times that I had anything that kind of just struck me when I was meeting with the brothers here, you know, oneness, I said amen. I was already so much towards Greek thought, so concerned with how that plagued the doctrines of the church that when I looked at the Trinity, I said, something is so off in the categories we're using, the language we're using. This is Neoplatonism. This is not the, the Hebrews' relational idea of God. This is not Yahweh in the flesh gathering his sheepfold. This is something altogether foreign. I felt that already, but here's something I didn't feel. Brother Howard said, well, you know, I don't remember what he said exactly, but it was good. You know, um, you know, um, you know, but he said something along the lines of, do you think about God rightly when you consider wrath? Do you understand the agency in which God operates in? Do you understand you might be looking at the back, the wake, like Moses did? Do you understand that you might not be seeing the essence rightly, and um, I'll just remember just, what, you know, and, and wait a second, you know, and thinking about being in college and feeling as though that there was something about being the image of God that said we couldn't go into violence, and I just knew there's something, there's something to this revelation, God, there's something so radical about love, isn't it, Lord, there's something here. And uh, that night, we were asking questions, firing and firing and firing. Well, Brother Howard, what about this passage? What about this passage? What about this passage? You know? And uh, uh, James was in the room, and where are you, James? Oh, yes. James is in the room, and he's getting nervous, like, I love these homestead guys, and I love Zach. Maybe they're not going to get along, you know? <laughs> I said, no, it's all of the Lord, you know? He's, he's with us. He's shaping us. There's no pride in this room. There's no posturing. There's no arrogance. There's men who want to know God. God's going to show us the truth of it. So if that's where you're feeling, you know, wrestle through with us. You know, start going to the scriptures and stop making them say what you think they have to say and start asking, God, what are you saying? I want to understand you, you know? Amen. Okay. Page three of 16, 30, min 30 minutes in, all right. So I want to speak to you about some of these major revelations when Jesus, uh, and uh, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, uh, this is going to be New Testament scriptures. I'm going to quote quite a bit to you. I'm going to ask you to please be listening for some themes, okay? That's what I'm asking. I'm going to tune your ear to hear themes, and let's see if we can come away with three, okay? And if you don't, I'm going to tell you the three, so. John 1, 16, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Amen. I hope you came away with one there. But let me just say something. If the law of Moses is revealing the essential nature of God, then why is he saying that no one has seen God at any time? But now he's being explained to you. The law of Moses is revealing the essential nature. Then why is he saying no one has seen God at any time? But here's a grace and truth that's now coming to you. What I would want to say to you is this, and I don't, ooh, if I keep getting on the weeds here, okay, but just stick with me, okay. Remember, if justice comes through like a beam of light in your dark tool shed, that's wonderful. But at some point, you've got to look at what it's defending. You've got to go and look along the light and see where its source is, okay? That's what I really want you to keep in mind as you're thinking on all of these things, amen? 2 Timothy 1.10, but, but has now, I started this verse middle of sentence, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You listening for themes? Amen. Hebrews 2, here's a theme not so good. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Seems like he had an enemy, public enemy number one here. Seems to be in contrast to some of the themes he's telling us he is. 2 Corinthians 3, starting verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that now exceeds it. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech. Amen. Seeing the contrast a little bit? 
John 8, 12, then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 7, 37, on this last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. John 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Acts 3, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. John 14, Philip said, Lord, oh, I included that one to, we'll get to that one. Okay, what three things are you hearing can you name three that you're hearing as a theme? Life, amen. Light, amen. Okay, death's not the one we're looking for. That's the opposite, but that's okay. Light, life, glory, huh? Love, amen. Light, life, love. What three things would you contrast light, life, and love against? Darkness. Death, hate, that seems to be a pretty good contrast next to those three things, right? Light, life, love, do you get that sense coming from all of those passages? Amen. So I think part of solving the problem of how these two things come together, it starts with us realizing There is something so precious at the heart of God. There is something so essential in his nature that to violate this in any way bears a tremendous consequence. If you were to step out of the boundaries of life, what would you be in? Death. Is that right? Yes, okay. If you were to step out of the boundaries of light, what would you be in? Darkness, amen. If you were to step out of the boundaries of love, what would you be in? Hate, that's right. You see, judgment is a word that actually means to separate out, to value, to select, to distinguish. How is it that we are going to distinguish the essential nature of God from that which is not God? There has to be consequence. Is that right? There would have to be something that if you weren't in this and you were in this, it was immediately apparent to you. Because everything that is in this brought something. And everything that was in this brought something entirely different. There has to be some type of boundary markers and boundary lines. So let's think about a few of these types of things that we see something like this. And 
the case of Uzzah and Obed-Edom? Um, did they have two remarkably different experiences with God? Uzzah was struck down dead, right? Pharaoh violated some type of boundary. He was struck down as if dead. However, the violation of that boundary, did that tell us who the essence of God was? No, because all of a sudden he's sitting at Obed-Edom's house, Obed house, and what happens in his house? Huh? Blessing, life, prospering, light, everything that was good. In fact, worship so much that he came along with how many relatives? 68. Amen. Something quite a bit different. So Uzzah violated something and had an experience. But when that violation didn't occur, the essence of what was there was not what he experienced at all. In fact, it was the opposite. I was thinking about the spanking of a child with regard to this. I was thinking about the love that a father has for a child, and, and yet, if that father's, or if, this, if the child's view is that it does not want to be corrected, it does not want to change, it does not want to have any inconsistency pointed out, anything that they're doing that doesn't match up, then that spanking is gonna be looked at from that child up to the dad. He's gonna look at it as what? Hatred, punishment, right? But when there's an agreement, I don't want that behavior either. I wanna form responses that have a hatred towards that behavior. All of a sudden, you see someone coming alongside of you in that process, and you feel as though it's the most loving thing you've ever experienced. Does this shape our view of God? In Psalm 18, it says, to the pure, I'll show myself pure. To the blameless, I will show myself blameless. To the crooked, I will show myself shrewd or torturous. What do you think? Does that mean God puts on a different form and shows himself to be torturous? Or is it the perspective we take unto him matters so much? It shapes so much of what our interaction, so much of our prayer life, it's, it's complaining. I'll tell you, you got a wrong view of God. Matthew 25 is an important passage for this paradigm. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made ta five talents more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful ser servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Seems like a pretty wonderful relationship. Did the servant serve the master because he had some type of love, respect, honor for his master? And did he enter then into some type of joy and relationship with that? Amen. How about another one that says this? He who had also received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Did his view of God shape a way that he was living his life? He looked at God and he said, you're an austere master, reaping where you do not sow. I know who you are. 
I'm telling you, our view of God is of tremendous consequence to everything that we do every moment of the day. It's shaping everything in you right now. It's going to shape the joy that you would feel or a, a, a sense of condemnation that you can't get out of. All of these things are going to be shaped by these realities, by how you approach the Lord. I mean, let's think about this for a minute. What a different interaction. Someone already mentioned it today in Genesis 3.8 that it says, And God walked in the cool of the day, in the ruach of the day, in the spirit of the day, up to Adam and Eve. That's a pretty interesting description of God coming into the presence of man. Do you guys feel a lot of fear and trepidation in that description? Do you feel as though there's a love that's pretty rich there? Do you feel as though that if man hadn't fell, that instead of hiding, the next verse would have read, and Adam ran up? You know, I mean, you know the relationship that's going on here? Read the next time that the Lord descends to his people. And let's contrast it to that feeling. This is Exodus 19. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Can we go on and say that this feels a little bit different than Genesis 3.8? Do you all feel that? So what has changed? Did God leave the garden and just forfeit every bit of love and desire he had to have this relationship with man and now he's filled with uncontrollable rage? And now he's descending on a mountain and he's coming with this uncontrollable rage to the people that for some reason he wanted to deliver out of Egypt. That he heard their cries because it was published to them by others who sought to crown the earth. I heard their cries, it's been published to me, of a great oppression and offense of my people. This is the God now smoking with anger. Or is there something that's changed between us and God that has to be dealt with in order for us to know this Genesis 3.8 experience with God the way we're supposed to? Do you feel as though, God, if we can get from this smoking mountain back to that garden, we might all have a chance? But not here, not this way. Don't you feel it? Do you feel as though you're encountering something that you know is inviolable? You can't cross it. There's flaming swords guarding its entrance, and its flames go on every side. And you get a sense, God, how do we come to you? How do we unite back to you? We have this thread that connects to you, but we don't know, God, how to get there. And all of a sudden, you see this expression of justice. And what are you going to conclude? That that's your God. That's your Father. That's it. 
How are you gonna say there's a consequence to something in me? And maybe if it could be dealt with, maybe if it could be buried, maybe if it could be handled, I'd get to know this God who is behind all of this smoke, all this fire, these cherubims with flaming swords that guard its entrance. Amen. Here is the God that you're trying to find. Here are a few verses. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Let that sit and go all the way through you. Don't ever doubt it again. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Ezekiel 33, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, that he would turn back and he would turn back from his evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear a father's voice? You know, when God repented of having made man, do you sense what he's feeling? Could you imagine having 12 sons and each one of them going their own way against everything that represented life, everything that would patter them towards love, everything that would help them hold the container of everything pure and right and good and true within them, and you see them running the opposite direction. And no matter you call out to them, their heads won't turn. You call them by name, a name you gave them, and their heads won't turn. They continue to go towards the pattern of death. I have no delight in the wicked, but that they would turn and that they would live. That's what's in my heart. Read Luke 15, a father whose son goes away, and he can't even get out his speech. He can't tell the father, I did it all wrong. Save it. Come here. It's remarkable. It's remarkable the revelation that God has towards us. When the Trinity separates the atonement as a father crushing his son who can't even look on you, who wants to kill you, you are so far removed from the God who has made you. Second Peter 3 the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come under repentance. Habakkuk 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment, O rock. You have marked them for correction. You're, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot even look upon wickedness. 
1 Timothy 2, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3, 16. Does anybody know that verse? I couldn't find it. God so hated the world, he sent his only son. Where is Brother Ossie read that to me one time in his own, you know, how he changes the scriptures on you. <laughs> he lets you know he did it. Uh, and you just kind of go, wow, that's what we're saying, though, a little bit, huh? For God so hated the world that he sent his son that he could pour out his wrath on him so he could feel a little bit better about us. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. God is love. God, it says in these passages, connects these three things inextricably bound to one another, light, life, love. If you're walking in the light, if you're walking in this love, if you are walking in the life of God, these are its distinguishing marks. Saying you have become his image bearer. You're representing him now. You're explaining him to the world. The shift between the garden and Sinai, then from the shift from Sinai to Jesus, seems to be shaping up a bit. God is light, life, and love. When this is violated, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden of this light, life, and love of God. From there, they go out into the wilderness of sin, death, and darkness. Their next encounter with God is in a company of angels that hide or veil his essence behind the consequence of violating this essence. Man has sinned. The law or justice of God's economy shows a penalty for sin that is fierce, exacting, and terrifying. Did you hear that? I'm not saying there's no wrath of God. It's not personal in him. He's not, he's not incarnating a wrath. He's incarnating love. There's something different here. But there is tremendous consequence to being outside of light, life, and love. And that consequence is known as the wrath of God and it is exacting and terrifying. God's desiring to be the just and the justifier of those who would believe comes and takes our sin, condemnation, and death to lead us back into Genesis 3. Amen. Again, I just want to go over a few things that could help then. What are we to make of the descending of God then in a cloud of smoke and a flame of fire and a mountain that burned and quaked? How are we to understand it? Some of this, I think, could be understood even through agency. Let me just introduce this idea quickly. And um, 
and we'll see where we go from there. Agency. One author has, has wrote about agency in the Bible like this. Those who traverse the halls of academia have long known about this principle. Unfortunately, those charged with instructing the Christian in the pew either do not know about it or have neglected to share it with those in their care. What it's saying is, is that there's a, a mindset, it's an ancient Near Eastern mindset, it's a Jewish mindset that's very common in the scripture, and it's the idea of agency. It's the idea of putting your name in someone else and them representing you. And it says that's a very common understanding in the scripture, in the times that scriptures are in, they're written in, in a culture that understands these terms, that think about things in these ways. And it says if this is new to you, it's only because someone at the pulpit never shared it with you, but it's not because it's new as a thought. It's as old as the scriptures that were written. What then is, is principle or agency? An agent is described as one who has been authorized to act for or in the place of another. In Hebraic terms, the agent or the one sent is called the, brothers of fear, the one sent in Hebrew, yes, shaliah. That's how it was spelled. I wasn't going to say it without asking. It's spelled S-H-A-L-I-A-H. I probably would have put Shaliah, and then you could have just said Shaliah. Did you hear that, though? Was I a distraction with that? Let's get back to it. In the Hebraic term, the agent or the one sent is called the Shaliah. Everyone following me? Agency was an important part of everyday life in the ancient world. Individuals such as prophets and angels mentioned in the Jewish scriptures were thought of as agents of God, Shaliahs. Tracking? And the key idea regarding agency in the ancient world appears to be summarized in the phrase from rabbinic literature so often quoted in these contexts. The one sent is like the one who sent him. The biblical scholar Thompson wrote this. According to the Talmud, a saliah could, among other things, carry out business transactions, make binding treaties, and arrange marriages. A common saying in the rabbis was this, the one who sent is like the one who sent him, or a man's agent is the equivalent to himself, because the salia may act on behalf of the one who sent him. When one deals with the salia, it is as if one is dealing with the one who sent that person. And you say, well, what is the consequence of that? Why are you reading so much? Oh, well, listen to a few things that maybe didn't stand out to you in the scriptures before, and maybe will come in a little bit more now. And this might be an aid in understanding what we're experiencing in flames of fire and the intensity of what's going on as this mountain is burning. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, and he said, Yahweh came from Sinai, and he rose up from Seir. To them he shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with 10,000 Ten thousands of holy ones from his right hand, a fiery law for them. Who did he come with? Ten thousand holy ones. Ten thousand angels were in his company as he descended down. Amen, you're tracking? Okay. Let's look at a New Testament passage, Galatians 3, 19. What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. Who appointed the law 
unto the Israel, unto the Hebrew Jewish people, according to Galatians 3, 19. Angels. Okay, let's go to Acts 7. Maybe that was, that was a typo. Acts 7. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Did you hear it? The one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our father would not obey but rejected. Which of the prophets did your father not, fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now would become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Who did they receive the law from? Angels. Hebrews 2, verse 1 through 3. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receives a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by us who heard? Do you hear it? Saying something's changed. Remember, God communicated to us before through angels, but now he's spoken through his son. It's of greater consequence. Did you hear it? Amen. Exodus 23, this is about an angel going forward in the conquest of Canaan. Here's what, hear what it says. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Who is going before them into the conquest of Canaan? Has God incarnated himself as a warrior to bathe himself in the blood of men? Who is going before them in the conquest of Canaan? An angel. And that angel, it says, will be merciless, exacting injustice. He will not compromise. And he says to Joshua, you listen to every word. Yes, every word that he speaks. Because if you compromise what he says, he will be exacting on you as well. Do you hear that? Is there room for mercy in this angel? No, he's not made in the image of God in that sense. Maybe an analogy would help here. And um, I have on here Brothers Ossie's German Shepherd example. Um, this, this I felt was really helpful. Um, so if... Some of you were to go over, and I'm going to exaggerate here, and then some of you will be af afraid to come over to Brother Ossie's house, I suppose. Um, but um, how many dogs, are trained dogs, do you have at your house? Three, and they're all German Shepherds? Uh, okay. We won't mention the poodle. It sounds less fierce. You know? <laughs> Three German Shepherds sounds right to me, doesn't it? <laughs> Two German Shepherds and a poodle. <laughs> but... They're a remarkable dog, so no offense to poodle owners. Um, three German shepherds, okay, are guarding, are guarding Brother Ossie's home. Okay, they have a deep sense of the love and life that is in that home. They feel as though it's something so pure, so inviolable, 
that they will do anything to protect the people that are in that home. If you were to come walking up to meet Brother Aussie at 2 a.m. in the morning and given him no announcement of your arrival, and they had three entrances to their home, and at each entrance of that home was one of those German shepherds. What do you think your greeting is going to be as you open up that door at 2 in the morning and come busting in through? By the way, you've never met Brother Aussie, and these dogs don't know you. Anyone? It's not going to be pleasant, is it? Okay? And what if I were to see you the next day, and you got a good hobble in your step, and some bandages still bleeding through the pants on the backside, and I say to you, what happened? And you said, I met Brother Aussie last night. (laughs) Would any of you believe that that was Brother Aussie that did that? (laughs) No, you'd understand you know, if you continue to discuss that Brother Aussie just didn't get hairy and really upset, <laughs> this was something else designed to defend the sanctity of love, life that was found in the boundaries of this habitation. And so, too, we need to think in these types of terms when we see 10,000 holy ones descending in fire upon a mountain. It feels a lot less like Genesis 3 because it is a lot less like Genesis 3 because we're not in right relations with this God. The justice is demanding a consequence because God has set it up that way. I wish I had a lot more time in this and that's something you say when you can't really explain something that well. It is. Um, Einstein said, if you understood something the right way, you could explain it to a five-year-old. And it's what made the ideas he was trying to share on everyday news of Americans on their coffee tables. He connected to them in that way. When I understand it that way, I'll be able to share it in five minutes instead of the 50 it would take me right now and all the verbiage. But, um, but this is an important idea that as soon as you violate the cons. The, the confines of life, the boundaries of life, there is only one response that can come. That's, remember when we were talking about the interconnectedness of everything? Do you get a sense here that a wife would not want to violate the order of her relationship with her husband no matter what? That's called the fear of God. And it's not because they're trembling at the idea that God's gonna throw a lightning bolt and strike them dead. It's because they understand that life Light, love, is found in the boundaries of God's order of relationships. And in that place, there is a grace and a protection and a covering that is pure and good and right. And to step outside of that automatically connects you to something other than light, life, and love. It, it, by nature, it has to. It's either life or it's death. It either has a pattern to it that produces life or it has a pattern to it that produces death. Everything you do in your life is patterning towards either what God has said will bring life or what you have said, well, the fruit looked good to me, felt pretty good to the body, and I'm sure it'll give me the things I most need in this life. That's what's shaping your whole life, one or the other. That's a whole different sermon. I don't want to get on that. Okay, amen. Let's stay on this. 
Um, how long did I actually have for this seminar? No, really, I didn't. I've got to talk. Okay, all right. Amen. Okay. I want to get into the idea of the wrath of God revealed from the heavens so that we can see this pattern of life and pattern of death. Okay? In Romans 1, verse 16 through 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, it talks about there is an announcement, a proclamation that there is a reconstituting of life for everyone who would want to believe and come into that life. And it's saying that there is a, there is a pattern to this, and it's going to be this thing called faith where you're going to trust in God who's going to reveal to you what really brings life. And in that trusting relationship, you're going to see the prospering of life reconstituted in you and in the relationships all around you. It's a good news. It's, it's a proclamation of a kingdom. It's a proclamation of a society that can be formed now because God has delivered us from self-preservation and all of its selfish expressions and has allowed us to be touching his very spirit of self-giving life. And there is this announcement, hey, there is a power of God to save you now from wilderness and you can come back to the garden. Okay, but listen to those who would reject that announcement. The very next verse, Romans 1, chapter eight, or verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so there's a, a wrath that's being revealed across the whole earth, it says. It says it's the wrath of God. Okay, and it says it's going across the whole earth. And so we're probably going to find that God is coming down and, you know, slaying a sword and doing all these things. Let's see if these verses tell us how this wrath is perpetuating itself on the earth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and, in their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Are we feeling a spiral starting to happen? I'm feeling it. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations to, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Interesting. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I don't know about you, but I feel the wrath of God being revealed from the heavens in the rejection of life. Do you in those words? Does that not sound like hell itself upon this earth? It does it not sound like God starting to pull back his restraint starting to pull back his spirit that will not strive with man always, starting to remove a grace and a covering that the man of lawlessness would have its reign and that all the dysfunction of the wickedness in man would have a full expression on the earth. That's what I hear. I, in fact, I don't know what else to hear. I mean, are we to hear that God then is the one who authored homosexuality? If he is in wrath personally, is he the one that would do such a thing? No, he's saying that as he removed himself from them, a debased mind came over them. And in doing so, they exchanged his order, his pattern of life that the gospel is saying is now open to people. They're exchanging that for this pattern of death. And it's bringing about a brokenness through and through. All of man is falling lower and lower in a descent of death, destruction, betrayal, hurt, hatred. And it's perpetuating its seed on the earth until there won't be anything left. That's what he's describing. The wrath of God is revealed from the heavens. And it is revealed by all those who are rejecting the light life, and love that would liberate them. I think about it like the Noah's Ark. What a powerful imagery. As God starts to pull back himself from that which he has created and set his favor only on the pattern of life that he gave to Noah. The chaotic waters that the Spirit hovered over to bring life. Now the spirit no longer strives with man, pulls itself back, and those chaotic waters <laughs> rush over man, swallowing him up, eating up all that is not of God, everything that is not of life, everything that is inconsistent with his nature. And yet, where is his nature? It's sitting on an ark, on a family who heard God's voice and obeyed. And on animals, beasts, that gave up their will and said, maybe we don't know how to be nurtured in the coming storm. Maybe we need to be underneath something that would teach us how to love, how to live. You know, a lion, if it attacks a gazelle, I suppose, it won't make it on the ark. So it has to give up these base natures. It has to hear a voice saying, go to the pattern of life. I've given you. You get a sense that's happening on the earth right now, don't you? God removing chaotic waters, the biting, the stabbing, the, the betrayal, and yet a pattern of life that God has said, two by two, I'll send them 
two by two I'm going to send them. If they'll lay down their will, they'll lay down their own base natures and say, maybe I don't know what love is. Maybe I've always thought of love or correction as condemnation because I've never thought of God rightly. I feel that happening on the earth right now so much. I feel God raising up a witness of life. You guys, I'm so thankful to be here. What hope do we have out there? If God's people can get a hold of this infinite love that would guard us and keep us, that would shape and order us, you feel as though there's a hope for something that could be so much different for the race of man. They could be born again of God's nature. They could deny that self-preserving nature and they could touch that self-sacrificing spirit that would indwell each heart that would just repent, that would say, I am done with the pattern of death. I want out of the wilderness has justice been satisfied? Have the scales been set? Take me, God, to life. And you feel the people that want to run out of a grave. They know all the death that's there, and they know there's got to be something different. And this is that testimony and witness. This is the house of God being built, the Zion that they would flee to, and they would find refuge. Could we put up that graphic up just for a minute? <laughs> this, this is what happens when an artist gets a hold of an idea that you kind of sketched out to them. <laughs> we had a help with some brothers that just have such a wonderful way of expressing things when you lay something out to them. But um, this was an idea I had about this Romans 1 what, what I'm feeling from that passage that I think captures it and some powerful imagery. Um, these are going to be printed out in the back. And if you, if you find it helpful, you can grab one. You know, if you found this did nothing for you, okay, I'll, I'll hand them out at Christmases till I'm out of them or something. <laughs> okay. Probably just going to end on this so we can really see what's going on here. So, amen. Okay. It's probably small for a lot of y'all, but what do you see in the centermost circle right there? What's that? Eden. That's right. 
in the cinnamon circle is the sun. It's got a valley, a beautiful valley, and it's got the river of life flowing right out through its middle, all the way out. Amen. And what do you see that's going around it? Fire. That's right. That's to represent that law. That represents just about how everyone feels when they first feel something towards coming to God, but they feel a law that tells them, oh, no, not you, buddy. No, you're condemned, you know. The law brings wrath. It brings a sense of consequence, and you feel as though, oh, I guess that's, that's not for me. That's that fire around that you're going to have to press through, through the law I died to the law. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. What's the, what's the first little bit around that circle? You all probably can't see it. It says these types of words. Anger, insecurity, fear. Um, I can't even read it. Depression, yes. Okay, yes. Insecurity, anxiety, loneliness, resentment, anger. I describe this as a stretching of relations around you as well. What's the idea here? The idea is, is that as you move out from how God has ordered a pattern life, that's the familiar authority. And I, I had wanted to get into that. What is familiar authority? What is this, this non-coercive ordering of relationships that forms the pattern of life? Um, but that's what's in Eden. That's what's, that's what's in the, the life that is found in God, okay? But as soon as you start to exit out of that, as soon as you start to take even the slightest step out of that, and you start to go to a carnal nature, Start to go and give room to a mind that is hostile towards God and cannot please God. The first thing you're going to start to feel are certain emotions like insecurity. You're going to feel anger. You're going to feel fear. Okay, perfect love casting out fear. You're stepping out of that, going back to self-love. Self-love is feeding you a whole lot of anger, insecurity, all kind of all kind of things start coming up that weren't there before. That's your check engine light. That's something that God has put within you that starts to sound an alarm bell that says you are moving out of life and you are moving into death. You are moving out of light and you are moving into darkness. You are moving out of the patterns I have for you and you are getting the feedback loop that tells you you're not in me right now. You've got to trust in something else. You've got to hope in something else. You've got a life anchored in something else, and you're feeling it. You've got to get back into this radical thing called love. True love, true covenantal love. You've got to get back to it. Self-love has hijacked it, okay? And that's the first thing you're going to start to feel. That first outer band is a wall. What is that wall there to do? It's that you would hit that wall in God's mercy, and it would turn you back around. It's that you would hit it and go, something's not feeling right. Yes, you put water in your gas tank. It's not going to feel right. 
God, thank you that you put a feedback loop so intimately connected to us that it can immediately tell you that's not life. That's death. Keep going that way. It'll take all of you. But what happens when we break through that wall and some persistence? No, I don't want to hear that. No, no, I, I'm sure it's not that. In fact, I don't want to turn to God and his people. That might cost me everything. No, I'll just keep, keep going out. What's the next thing that we've got here? First band of the storm. Second band of the storm comes. Wrong relations with desires are starting to form shackles of habit that are getting thicker and more demanding. Insatiable demands always left unsatisfied begins to bring consequence in your body for this ungoverned appetite. Relationships with others become paper thin, abusive, and manipulative. Trust is forfeited for utility. With the serving of self is the goal of every interaction you have. Clinical depression, anxiety, other consequences in the, in the body, sexually transmitted diseases, insomnia, early heart attacks, stroke, mental breakdowns. Everything is, everything of nature is starting to react against this persistent press away from God and from his pattern. Now, I'm not talking about you're struck with blindness or something, and that means, you know, whose man's sin was it? Don't get me wrong here. I'm talking about the deterioration of relational things in our life that are producing death within us. We eat and eat and eat and eat because we have this craving that only God can satisfy, but we won't go to him for it. We start to go after relationships in a wrong way, trying to extract things always from the other person, and you can feel it. This person doesn't care about you. He just, he needs something all the time. He's not getting it from God. He's refusing to get it from the places that he's supposed to get it from, okay? Now, if you persistently go through this, remember through a hard and impenitent heart, you are storing for yourself up wrath. Romans 2. It says the kindness of God leads you to salvation. We already talked about that. Brother Ossie did a message on that, I think, a month ago. What did we talk about the kindness was? Long-suffering, which represented long, which gives us the idea of what? Time. Yeah. We talked about God is giving time for you to respond. You know, but in, in, and in this case, you, you fight through that wall. What are you doing? You're callousing the heart. It's becoming harder and harder now to hear God's voice saying, I'm, you're supposed to hit that wall and turn. You're supposed to hit that wall and turn and go back to the center where there's life. Why are the walls getting thicker in the picture? Yes? God doesn't want you to break through them. It becomes to get to that next level, really, of where wickedness is overtaking every part of who you are. God has put so much resistance. I mean, you really gotta just keep fighting through an absolute persistence that you refuse life and you are choosing death. The thickness of the walls are representing that God has made it so that you gotta plug your ears, cover your eyes, 
to every bit of testimony around you that you are immersed in death. Walls also represent the difficulty of getting back. What used to be a small infraction has now got high walls of Jericho protecting a stronghold that you don't know how to get delivered from. Those strongholds come through persistence. When you will not take any form of correction, instruction, or discipline because you reject the familiar authority of God. You reject the way he would order it. And so the outside, the last ring, starts representing some of the things that get us really close, close to actual death. You know, and that's, right, the thief comes to steal and kill and to destroy. Makes a little bit more sense now. Can you see, can you see Paul speaking about how Satan will be a buffer for the flesh to the man who has sinned in the ch church of Corinth if they will remove him? You see, they remove him from Eden, and immediately what's he going to run into? All of that stuff. He's going to run into a, conse a consequence in his flesh of great significance. And if it will, which it did in the case of this man, it bounces him off of that and heads him back in humility and repentance to saying, God, teach me again your order of things. God, teach me your ways. Forgive me that I went according to my desires and instead of according to your anointed, according to your word. But when you start getting into those outer rings, things start really taking over. Obsession with darkness, self-mutilation, demonic oppression. You can think of, and Judas, his heart was filled, it said, was Satan, and he went away to go betray him. He had calloused himself enough. Remember the woman with the costly oil? You know, and he says, you know, and it get this little bit, it says that, you know, and he was the keeper of the purse. And so that's why he complained about it could have been given to the poor. Do you feel the hypocrisy and lies that this man's living behind? He's callousing himself to every bit. Do you think there was a testimony in Judas's life telling him, you're not in life, you're not walking with the author of life? There was a testimony. But he masked it, covered it up, and continued in callousness outside of the corrective word that Jesus could have said, your heart is filled with covetousness. Lay it down. He didn't want that word. He wanted to protect that greed. He wanted to protect that which he thought he needed and loved. And so he trudged out ahead. And when he got out into the outer, all of a sudden now, Satan's filling his heart and he's betraying the very author of life. Breaking through to that last bit would be that outer darkness. Isn't it fitting it's called outer, outer darkness? If judgment is the separation of the things that are not God and God is light, life, and love, it would make sense then that that would be called outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where God has removed every bit of himself from those people. Now all that's left is the absolute vile wickedness of what everything is that is not in God. Now, in that outer darkness, there's a chasm you can never get back. Right? You can never get back, which is why God puts walls so thick. 
because he knows the consequence of when you've gone all the way out and there's no longer a path to return. I will tell you, though, there is one other part of this diagram, and that is this shaved-out section that's looking like a crescendo, and that is how an atonement feels to me, a crescendo. And in that, it says this. I've got it written down there. Amen. One thing before I get on atonement that I think is worth just pointing out. What is the hope for anyone that's in any of those bands? What is going across all the earth? It says there's something goes across all the earth. The eyes of the Lord. You remember, we talked about it last night. Do you remember a really terrible king by the name of Ahab? I think Brother Ossie called him a, a royal jerk or something like that. But, uh, I, this guy had, I mean, really, you know, he really, when you're reading through the chapters of who this king was, and yet as soon as he would humble himself, as soon as he felt as though this is not the way that I should go, and he would make himself low and seek God, there was a way back. There was a way back. The atonement here, that's what that says, has this verse to it, and I hope maybe it means more to you hearing it in this context, in this visual, than maybe it has before. 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. I just think there's... He stepped out into all of this wrath revealed from the heavens, bearing, like stepping out of the eye of a storm, knowing exactly what you're going to hit. You're going to hit the wall that creates the eye of that storm. And that wall is the fiercest part of the storm. You know exactly what you're doing as soon as you step out of it. You're stepping in to the to the dismantling and disordering of everything. Jesus steps out in that way and starts to cross all the lashes and bands of consequence of justice, changing an entire course for everyone, going all the way out to death, defeating it itself, and then blazing a path back to anyone who would follow me, he said. And all who start then to say, wait, wait, this is death. I don't care where you're at in that journey. You find a shepherd leading you back into life that he has purchased for all of his people according to his promise. 
This has been the journey that I've been on, okay? But I, have, I don't have this dialed every way through and through by any means. And, and not only that, more than that, I mean, Brother Howard, I think about a month ago was just like, how are you doing with this one? I know we got you in chalice with it. I said, I'm loving God more every day. I'm praising him more every day. His love is filling my heart, and I feel to run after him. I feel to run to him. I feel to celebrate him. I want to dance in his presence. I want to sing out to him with a new heart. I said, that's what I'm feeling. I said, so thank you, Brother Howard, for just saying this to me and allowing me to start going to the Lord and saying, could it be true? Isn't this what you hope? I've got some C.S. Lewis quotes on love from Four Loves, his book on Four Love. Wow. There's an invitation of love that'll make you go, is there anything like it? It costs me everything, but does it not give everything I'm looking for, everything that I want? You know, it's just like, God, this is it. This is it. This is what all of us can be liberated through, you know?